Hi, I'm Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, and I'm here with the Slate Spoiler Special podcast on Prince Caspian, The Chronicles of Narnia. Or I guess that goes the other way. The Chronicles of Narnia, colon, Prince Caspian, part two of the series from The Chronicles of Narnia books. Uh, I'm here with John Swansburg. Hi, John. Hello. Who is a culture editor at Slate and also our resident Narniologist, who I took to the movie with me. Not dragged. He was eager to go. I was eager. I'm embarrassed to admit. Because uh, unlike me, he was a fan of the books as a child. I read the first The Lion, Wish, and the Wardrobe as a child and was never able to get into it or, or any fantasy genre book really as a kid. I should, I should take another look now because I don't dispute that it's probably a wonderfully written book. But I've actually reread them in my adulthood and it's, it was quite pleasing. But then again, I was oh, a fan. Oh, you are well suited for this yeah, podcast. Yeah, it was in college. It was a while ago. So I, I, uh, I'm probably a little bit rusty. But it was, it was fun to reread them because I had no idea when I was a kid, obviously, about all the Christian allegory. And so it was kind of cool to come, and, come oh, back yeah, and visit. Oh, yeah. I want to talk about all that for sure. Um, let's just quick quickly summarize the story for those who haven't haven't read the books. So we start off in London, wartime London, right? Second yes. World War. And we have the four Pevensey children. Is mm-hmm. that how you say their uh, last Pevensey, name? Pevensey, I'm not exactly sure. And their names are in descending order of age. Peter, Susan, Edmund, Edmund Lucy. Correct. Descending from maybe 15 years old to yeah. about 9 or 10, something I like that. I think that's right. And as they're standing in a London train station one dreary day... They suddenly are swept through a mysterious portal that takes them back to, and here's where you'll take it away with the terminology. Right. Uh, so they, they end up uh, at Caer Paravel, which is the uh, castle that they ruled uh, from uh, at the end of the first book. But now the castle's no longer there. It's, it's uh, in ruins. It sort of takes them a little while to figure that out. I think this is in the trailer, that, they, that moment of discovery when they realize that they're back at their old castle, but it's... Because one no... year has passed in their lives since they first exactly. went to Narnia, but 1,300 years have something, passed. Yeah, something like 1,300 years. I think that's I think that's the number. So uh, a lot has happened in Narnian history since then, even though not much has happened in their lives, and they're not much older. So what they discover is that the Narnians, as they knew them, who were sort of this uh, happy band of like mythological creatures like centaurs and uh, just like talking beasts like... Uh, you know, badgers who keep keep home and make soup and eat, you know, crusty bread. Those, That's a good world. I want to live in it. Yeah, it's, it is a very charming crusty world. Crusty badgers. Yeah, crusty and the, the beavers badgers. from the first one are all, were always really charming to me. They, they were great. So all those folks that we came to adore in the first book are ostensibly gone, and, and Narnia is a, is a world of men, uh, human beings. Uh, and these who are hum- called in that world the, the telemarines. Tel- telemarines, telemarines, I believe. Um, so we learn a little bit more about their background later, but the, for our purposes... We find out that the the Narnians have uh, have been made extinct, or so the Telmarines think. They actually are still alive, but sort of living in the underground or in the woods, uh, far away from from most of the Narnian lands. And uh, the story is that um, I guess the first thing we see is uh, Prince Caspian is the is the sort of heir to the throne of Narnia now, and he's a Telmarine. And um, but he's too young, so the, he's not actually in power as the king. This other guy named Miraz is sort of like the regent. Uh, he's kind of guiding. Narnian policy until uh, Caspian is old enough to take over. Wouldn't that make Caspian the regent? Would it? I think so. I think the regent is what you call the young man who's waiting to rule. No? I feel like I read in one of the pieces that I've read that he was the regent. The only reason that word is in my head, but you might be right. Anyway, I have no can, idea. I know that word that applies up. to that situation, but I'm not sure which yeah. one. Anyway. Um, so, anyway, so Prince Caspian is uh, he's going to take over the throne eventually, but uh, Miraz has other ideas. And Miraz the first thing we see is he has a he has a baby, and so now he has an heir, and he wants to basically seize power. So he's going to kill uh, Caspian so that he can do that, so that he can consolidate his power. But Caspian is spirited off into the woods before he can be killed by the evil Miraz. And sort of the plot as it unfolds from there, just to, to do it as quickly as possible, is that he uh, spirits off 
into the woods. He's given by uh, his professor a sort of relic of the old Narnia, which is a horn, uh, which he blows uh, because he's in trouble and about to get caught by the evil Telmarine forces. And that's and, how he summons the school And children. that's essentially how he summons the Pevensey children uh, from London to Narnia. And eventually the two meet up, the Tel- the Prince Caspian meets up with uh, the PVC children and sort of updates them on the dire situation Narnia finds itself in, and they kind of band together and vow to bring Narnia back to the Narnians and uh, and fight the, the evil Telmarines and a series of battles sort of unfold from there. Was there yeah. something else that we wanted to? I think that, that that's, that's, that's basically for a plot it. Summary from yeah, there. I, I mean, think there... we can get spoiling from there. Yeah, I think so. So, so the first thing we wanted to attack is the whole question of religion in this movie, which I'm sure people are going to be curious about because you know, as everyone knows, the the CS Lewis novels are basically Christian parables, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think you would call them parables. They're pretty thinly disguised, yeah. you know, Christian stories in which there's an actual Christ figure, the lion Aslan, who right. dies at the end of the first, at the end of the first novel and movie, and um, is resurrected. And he reappears in this movie, and this is some of the stuff that I want to spoil: is how he reappears and how his his reappearance is sort of used as a as a Christian symbol. Right. I, mean, I, I had forgotten when exactly he came back or if he came back in this book, I confess. And uh, we first see him in a dream that one of the children, uh, Lucy, has. And Lucy's sort of always the most faithful of the children. She is the first one to go to Narnia in the, through the wardrobe and sort of tells her siblings about it, and they all think that she's like, got a screw loose. Um, Essentially, it seems like in C.S. Lewis's eyes, that must be because she's the youngest, right? I yeah, mean, I think so. She's sort of the most in touch with her spiritual side. I think that's precisely it. And so she sees uh, Aslan in a dream, and... We don't know exactly if that's like if that's going to be all we see of of this god figure, uh, but in fact he does come back at the very end to sort of basically save the day um, and and deliver the the kind of final crushing blow to the Telmarine forces uh, who are sort of in retreat already, but uh, without Aslan's sort of last roar. Uh, and in a very Christian moment, when he saves the day, he his his huge roar summons this kind of water god, right? right. The, the 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 climactic battle that takes place is um. The Telmarines are riding across a bridge, right, on the right. other side of which stand the lion and the little girl. And after this big roar, it's almost as if he's calling his father, right, because this river god appears who basically – it's a really cool digital effect – is sort of the river become a man. Right. Who looks to me exactly like an Old Testament god in an old-fashioned Bible illustration. Yeah, I mean, a big, bearded, white guy. Right. And he basically swallows them up in, in a moment that's not unsuggestive of the of the Egyptian forces being swallowed by the by the Red Sea – uh, in Exodus as well. So yeah, I mean that's certain. That's not exactly a subtle work there that the movie or the books are doing. I mean, in, in general, I, I I know that these movies have been somewhat controversial because of the religion thing. I, I didn't find that the movies, this one or the previous ones, were laid it on any thicker than the books did. If anything, they may, might even be a little bit more. Oh yeah, uh, it's not quite a critique of the movie. I mean, it's yeah. really of the, of the story itself to say that you know things get a little heavy, heavy-handedly Christian. I mean, we were discussing this last night. I was trying to talk about why I couldn't get into the books as a child, and I'm sure I was too young. Although I was probably 11 or 12 when I read them, I had some idea of, you know, what kind of a fable or parable might be, but I'm sure I didn't get that they were Christian. Right. But there was something about the ending and about the resurrection of the lion at the end of the first one, which I say is the only one I read, that did kind of creep me out. And I now realize that it was probably the 10-year-old seeds of my adult atheism already, <laughs> already being put in place. I mean, right. the end of this movie to me essentially seems like a brief on behalf of religious warfare, right? I right. mean, it's all about being on the righteous side and getting God on your side and everybody who's on the wrong side, all the Telmarine soldiers on that bridge, you know, basically die horribly right and and yet it's a happy ending for the movie and there's just something about that especially as a kid's movie that just that just left me with a queasy feeling although i know children's fantasy worlds are probably very righteous and black and white in exactly that way sure and the other thing that's strange about this from the theological perspective is it sort of 
it raises this question throughout the movie because Aslan sort of shows up only as he's sort of like the deus ex machina at the very end of the of the film. He is always held up as this powerful figure, but a powerful figure who's completely absent. And we and all of the the Narnians. I mean, some of them believe that he exists. Some of them don't. Some of them have basically feel like he's been gone for so long that and and they've suffered such uh, awful times in his absence that they sort of start questioning whether he exists at all. And then, you know, in the end, he does show up and sort of saves the day. But in the meantime, the Narnians have been suffering for like a thousand years and, you know, untold Narnians die in several battle scenes in this movie. And finally, Aslan sort of sees fit to show up and kick some ass. But I mean, it does raise the question. I would think if I were a nine-year-old, I could see myself walking out and asking my dad, what was Aslan doing all that time? Why did he have to wait and to come back and, and save the day? It's, it's never made clear what he was doing uh, you know, while all these bad things were happening. And I think that's sort of one question that people who don't cotton to uh, you know, Judeo-Christian theology always, always raise. It's like, you know, if God is, is um, uh, omnipotent, you know, why does he allow uh, suffering to happen? And I, that, that question is very much raised by this movie. And I don't know that it's, it's uh, satisfactorily answered even for a 12-year-old or 10-year-old mind. Right, yeah, and that question, it's called the theodicy, right? That's right. like actually an, an ancient medieval, you know, debate topic that they would sit around and debate, well, how could God allow evil to exist in the world? And, right. you know, obviously there were, you know, a thousand medieval ways of explaining what angels could dance on the head of a pin, so that would happen. But, yeah, any smart nine-year-old would sort of say, well, what makes this war different from all the other wars or all the other, you know, moments in the last 1,300 years when the Narnians might have needed some help? Right. There are a lot of little deus ex machina at the end that, that sort of, get under your skin if you've got a problem with that kind of story resolution. Another one is that, maybe this is explained better in the books, but that strange sort of anti-death juice <laughs> that Lucy, right. the littlest girl, carries around with her in, in this sort of holster in her, you know, little medieval, what do you call it where you keep a sword? A uh, scabbard. Not a holster, a scabbard. Right. She's got this this little bottle, like a perfume bottle, and it's never quite explained why, but if you drip this into the mouth of someone who's apparently just died in battle, they come back to life. Right, and, and like... Which makes each... for two very unsuspenseful deaths of Peter Dinklage's really wonderful, I thought, dwarf character. Mm-hmm. What's that character's name? Um, um, Trumpkin. Trumpkin, that's right. Yeah, he's sort of the good dwarf, and there's also a bad dwarf. Um, I personally love Peter Dinklage, and I was the only thing that made me sad is that his makeup made him look less hot than he usually does. <laughs> he's got to be the, the hottest small guy on screen, but he's got a big bulbous nose and is sort of aged artificial for this role. Anyway, a- after Trumpkin dies, he's brought back to life by the magic juice. Right. And the same for this this little mouse character. Right, Reaper Sheep, who will, who will play a big role in the in the next book and and, and no doubt the upcoming film uh Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Yeah, it's at the end of both the first book and this book, there's sort of like a chosen couple of people get to get that little drop of of, you know, rejuvenating Narnia Gatorade and get saved. But meanwhile, like all these other people, all these centaurs who fought bravely and uh etc., like those people just die, and it's not really clear why Lucy, just, you know, decides to to give a drop here and there to these to these chosen people. It's a little bit of a strange decision. It, I mean, in addition to being, you know, if if you're someone who is rubbed the wrong way by by a certain kind of um, Santa Claus presentation of religion, right. that could bother you. But also, just purely as a story element, it's just not that suspenseful if every major character that dies immediately comes back. I mean, right. seconds after you see them being carried in on a gurney. Yeah, exactly. It takes it does something take something away from that uh, anticipation there. I mean, and just in general, I mean, I walked away from this movie like being reminded of sort of how this story of this particular uh, book in the Chronicles was maybe one of the weakest uh, stories. It just uh, the villain, uh, this King Miraz, who's the sort of king of the the, the usurper king of the. Uh, tell Marines. He's just sort of not that interesting a character. I mean, he's, you know... He's Compared a, to Tilda Swinton's White Witch. Exactly. And Tilda Swinton's White Witch, uh, this is a, to spoil a little bit, makes a sort of uh, cameo in this movie. And she's so much scarier in this sort of 
minute and a half scene than anything that the king or any of his henchmen do. Uh, she's gripping. She's, she's really she's great really gripping, scene. and it makes you sort of pine for the for the first movie where she, where her sort of charismatic bad guy uh, character uh, really kind of lent some drama to this. Here, you kind of you know that Mraz is never really going to succeed at the end of the day, and he's just sort of like your run of the mill uh, you know bad king. He's not he's not that interesting a character, and and uh, we don't really know that much about him. We learn sort of vaguely through in the middle that he killed Caspian's father in a power grab but you know he's also just a human like he's not there's nothing magical about right, him he's you know, just like, a mortal guy right whereas whereas the queen you know could muster uh I don't know Turkish delight at the at the snap of a finger I mean that's that's pretty scary I will say that I mean it, it, it makes me want to go back and see Tilda Swinton in the first one because the, the 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 magic side of this movie this is I think is the strong point of the movie and I think you agreed with me on this is that the way that it evokes childhood fantasy and the idea of escaping to a world where even if you're 12 years old you can be a king and a great warrior and you know the greatest archer in history is really kind of wonderful and endearing and I I liked all of the parable about childhood as, as much as I didn't like all the parables about Christianity. Exactly. No, I think that's that in the end is what's more is the more powerful mythology is the mythology of childhood and also of imagination and the ability. I mean, if, particularly in the first book, we know that these children have are escaping from the Blitz and are separated from their parents and they're going to live with this strange relation in the country in Britain. And sort of the idea that they would escape to this this imaginary world to because they're just not quite capable of dealing with reality is is, is quite uh, powerful. Here, that aspect of of the um, story is not quite as present, uh, but there are moments in the beginning and at the end where that comes in. I, I mentioned to you one of the scenes I liked a lot was in the beginning. Peter and Edmund, we first see them are are fighting in a fist fight with uh, some of their classmates from their you know public school, and you kind of get the sense that these these kids who were kings for a hundred years in Narnia are having a really hard time adjusting to life back in back in Britain, wartime Britain, where they are no longer royalty, and some some kid like cuts them or, or steals their you know lunch money and they have to deal with that without a sword or a, a lion king uh, and they're and they're having a rough go of it and then at the end there's this moment that i found kind of powerful and, and actually choked me up a little bit i'm embarrassed to say but uh, one of the things that happens in this book is that peter and susan who are the elder of the pevency children are told by aslan that this is sort of their last go of it in narnia that they're sort of too old uh, they're they're getting pubescent and uh as such they're sort of no longer uh, going to have a role to play in the history of narnia and that's sort of a really evocative uh for me I, I, I don't know if it was for you but i just kind of i had this moment of being like oh it's the it's the end of childhood it's, and that was that was sort of meant more to me than any of the other allegorical stuff in the movie i agree i found that very moving and i was surprised i could be moved in the last couple minutes of a movie which i didn't hate far from it but there was a lot of sort of yawning through the clanking sure. sword fights and the prancing centaurs and there was a lot lot of a lot of fantasy element you know so yeah. you really have to be a fantasy person to get very into the two hours and 20 minutes of this movie but i agree when this when it very simply at the end like all the great classics of children's literature like alice in wonderland like so many you know children's children's books becomes about that moment of getting too old and slipping from childhood back to the real world right yeah who wouldn't get choked up is very nicely done i agree all right well john thank you so much for seeing the movie with me and bringing your narnia knowledge to the table uh, my pleasure i hope it served for slate.com i'm dana stevens Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.